Hi, this is Paul. Uh, yeah, another video about Basecamp uh, with Simone and Malcolm. So some of you have been around this long enough know that I, uh, I am a digger and I get, uh, I get interested on things and I sort of stick with them for a little while, but I'm also ADHD, so then I lose interest and I often wander away to something else. And so I've been trying to catch up with these two and, and there, there's just a number of really interesting things about it. One, one of them is, to me, they've been around a long time. And as that, that Vice article that I, that I, I wrote, read a little bit of, they, 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 were, they went viral on Reddit. One of the things that I pay attention to is, is these social media silos. And so YouTube and Twitter, they're, they're different things. And one of, the, one of the things that sort of surprised me is that these two don't have more subscribers on YouTube, given the amount of time that they've been around, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, there's, a, there's a tool out there. Oh, that's, there's a tool out there called, um, called Social Blade. And one of the things that you can do with Social Blade is sort of, oh, Windows, come on. Okay. One, thing you, one of the things you can do with Social Blade, ugh, you can look at, pretty much Twitter feeds or YouTube feeds and get all kinds of statistics from them. Now, having both looking at what Social Blade sometimes shows and looking at the analytics from my channel, you'll notice you really won't get that much useful information out of them. But there, there is some interesting information because I was wondering, you know, how much has this channel grown? How much hasn't it? Because six months ago, they were on some pretty major channels like Chris Williamson's channel. They've had some pretty major, they've had some pretty major guests on their channel. And so how much, one of the things that, that is true is that you don't tend to get the kind of bump from let's say being on Chris Williamson's channel that you necessarily might expect, even though um, Malcolm's appearance with Chris Williamson, you have, you know, almost 300,000 views, uh, didn't necessarily translate into, let's say, a bigger YouTube channel. Figuring out exactly what the analytics on YouTube mean is very, very difficult. I, after playing around with this stuff for five years, don't always really know what this stuff means. I tend to, my goal isn't to, let's say, drive up my YouTube subscribers and get big money from AdSense or anything like this. My goal tends to be a lot more engagement, which leads to the kinds of things that I do. What their goal is, I don't know. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll reach out to them, see if they're interested in talking. I would. They're 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 very interesting, but I'm I'm still sort of trying to catch up by digesting all of all of what they have to all of what they have to say. So so I am a little surprised that their YouTube following isn't bigger. Although they get pretty healthy numbers on a lot of the on a lot of the videos that they put out. Again, this this interview with Chris Williamson was was a good one. Chris does a great job with this stuff. Because I am calling out. So he asked him, "Why are you always in the news?" And then the question is, "Okay, well, being in the news, what does that mean? Does it mean you're sort of a blip?" And and this somebody left a great comment on today's video. 
Hi, Paul. Here's the deal with population, human population as I see it. The people who worry about its decline are really worried about economics, culture, politics, and so on. The people who worry about overpopulation are concerned with the biosphere. To me, the latter have the advantage because the biosphere is an inherently bigger concern, but in the end, what will be will be. So, interesting comment, thought it. The point of the comment, and I'm not intent to trigger a biosphere conversation, but the point of the comment is that with framing, with attention, we're always measuring depending on what we're looking at, what we care about, and that's how, again, we reduce this way too big world down into a manageable thing. So Chris Williams says, why, why, why are you always in the news right now? And what, what's so interesting to me, too, is that I was alive six months ago. I was watching YouTube six months ago. I was doing all these things six months ago, and one of you, I, I won't out you, if you want to out yourself in the comment section, you can. One of you sent me this video, and once I saw a little bit of the video that you sent me, I was like, oh, this is interesting. The, the, the emperor has no clothes right now, and I think a lot of people have mentioned collapsing fertility rates before, um, but I, I think that no one has really so consistently uh, uh, brought it up in a way that the people who want to ignore it have to look at the problem. You know, when I point it out, because I think a lot of people... Now, the point that he makes there, it's really helpful to pay attention to the catastrophe of the day and how particular catastrophes, and this is kind of the point behind ARC, you can make a big blip for a moment, but one of the things that we have in terms of, let's say, biosphere catastrophe or climate catastrophe is every time there's a storm, PBS will say, oh, there's a storm, climate change. Every time there's a drought, climate change. The, the reason for everything is one thing. Now, that reminds me of another video and something that I've wanted to put on the channel, and it's a it's a great point that Chris Williamson meant, so I'll bring it up right now. Another one about monothinking, which got some uh, backs up on the internet a couple of weeks ago, which was great, uh, was by Gwinda Bogle. He says, you can gauge someone's ignorance by the number of phenomena they explain with the same answer. Those who blame many different issues, like war, poverty, and pollution, on just one cause, like capitalism, are recycling explanations because the demand for answers outstrips their supply. So good, man. The demand for answers outstrips their supply. So they keep on repurposing the only answer that they do know. Everything is because of toxic masculinity or everything is because of climate change or everything is because of progressive ideology or whatever it is, right? And it got me onto another idea which might explain why you get ostracized sometimes for not being a card-carrying extremist or a cookie-cutter ideologue. So if I know one of your views, and from it I can accurately predict everything else that you believe, then you're not a serious thinker, right? So if you tell me your view on abortion, and from it I know your stance on immigration and healthcare and gun control and vaccines and taxation, it seems likely that you haven't arrived at all of those beliefs on your own. Rather, you've just unquestioningly adopted an entire suite of beliefs from some group, right? You've outsourced your worldview to the crowd. 
and these people are very predictable, right? I can be very confident about what they'll say if a new social campaign movement comes along because it's exactly the same as what everybody else in their group will say. And this is why anyone who thinks for themselves and doesn't adhere to a cookie-cutter ideology wholesale is so unpopular, right? You are an unreliable ally. Surely, you, you might agree with me on abortion, but I know that you disagreed with me on your opinion of Donald Trump, so I'm uh, very skeptical of you in the future, right? These unreliable allies need to be treated with much more skepticism and distance. And in a tribal warfare game, the most reliable members are the most popular. And I think that this is something reassuring to remember if you ever feel like you don't fit in or like people sometimes don't treat you with the same degree of uh, like tribal acceptance that you notice other people do. Even people who are perhaps compromising what they believe, uh, compromising their... Um, you're aware that they don't actually believe the things that they're saying, yet they say them and somehow members of the group would rather have a lying compatriot than an honest adversary or even just like an honest associate, right? And um, yeah, I think I felt that a good bit myself. Okay, so there's actually three ideas in there and they're all three, I think, real good keepers. You've got the people with the mono ideal. You've got the then you've got the people who are just always a function of the tribe. Any one thing that they think of is is clumped in with everything else. Now, if you read Alan Jacobs' uh, book about thinking, I mean, thinking for yourself. Boy, this stuff gets complicated. It's sort of a it's sort of a mixture of. Yeah, you have this question as to whether we actually think or whether we're just sort of mixing and matching all of the other things that come along. And because combinatorial explosive, each person is is their own nexus of combinatorial explosiveness. So that nexus is going to be different. And you've got your multi-generational mapping that has been passed on to you through your tribe, et cetera, et cetera. So it's actually a sign of health that these two, despite doing, I mean, they've been making a lot of videos. Um, nine hours ago, one day ago, two days ago, three days ago, four days ago. I mean, they almost make as many videos as I do. I have 2,500 uploads and they've only got 300. So they're, they're, they're just getting started. Me, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I've, I'm just cruising. But there's a, there's a there's a mononess about this. I mean, he's got one point, which is population collapse. But then there's a lot of other interesting things that come up here. And even just in the, I'm only going to get into the first part of this video. Even into this first part of the video, he he lands us with some ideas that are really interesting and really smart and very much worth thinking about. But again, whether or not this catastrophe and how to take this catastrophe is going to sort of lodge itself in the public's imagination is is a very complex thing. And then, of course, it, it begs to ask why all of these other sort of mimics in the culture, 
Well, every time there's something, it's climate change, it's climate change, it's climate change. And then, of course, you have the, the reversal of that. And so not only do you have people that are sort of reliable mimics in the culture, always doing one thing, one thing, one thing. Then you have the other people that are just reactive to it. And they're really sort of the same thing. They're just the inverse of it. But then when you've got an idea like this, it's like, huh, how to think about it. And it's a slow motion thing. And, and even the way he goes about it is very interesting because he's very clear on a number of things. I'm not, I'm not into any coercion. So in that sense, it's sort of like arc. And he said, me and mine will be fine. And it's like, <laughs> you're, the, you're the parents of young children. You have no idea. You have absolutely no idea the way influence works in your children. I remember talking to a, a colleague of mine who, I've told this story before, he, he and his wife, they lived in a rather out-of-the-way place. I'm sure they had very limited TV and screen and all of those things. They homeschooled their children all the way through. And he's at a situation now where he can't visit his daughter because she won't open the door for him. And, and he's not a bad guy. I mean, this guy is not a bad guy. And there's no accusations about molestation or anything like that. There's none, nothing like that. All I'm saying is this world is powerful. And a little bit later, he's going to talk about this monoculture. I think there's some real, real good insights into that. But don't be so sure that you can sort of jigger things and have those little children go the way you think they will. Because I would dare bet that neither Simon nor Simone, no, no it's, it's, it's Malcolm, and, Malcolm and Simone, neither Malcolm and Simone's parents had any, well, they didn't try like we did. It's like, hey, I talked to a lot of, the Christian Reformed Church, you know, before it sort of let its walls down in the counterculture, the Christian Reformed Church had this dialed in in our own Christian schools, had our own churches, and, and it was a very strong and vigorous culture, and it's just kind of been disassembled over the last 40, 50 years. And the Amish. So it's, you know, I, I, I've, I recommend people have a lot of humility and, and recommend you have a lot of faith because, truth be told, none of us know how these stories go. Well, let's, let's get back to the conversation. People, especially, you know, on the more progressive side of the spectrum, they just want to dismiss it. Oh, the planet's better without humans or whatever. But when you point out that not a single society on Earth today, except for maybe Israel, we can talk about that later in the conversation, has figured out how to have prosperity, gender equality, and high levels of education, and anywhere close to a stable population. Like, considering we are trying our best, and I think rightfully so, to spread those things across the world, that should be like a note. Like, that should be like a, oh, this system that we think is so great and we want to be the future of human civilization doesn't seem to work at, at the most basic level. That seems like quite a scary uh, proselytization for the future or prediction for the future. If you're to say that we need to get rid of one from education, equality, prosperity, or birth rate, we just need to concede the fact what that the birth rate. What we need to do is we need to find new cultural solutions. We need to find a way to maintain fertility rates while having education, 
while having gender equality. Now, he's difficult to interrupt because he's a fast talker and he goes, this shouldn't be a big surprise to us because if you watch Modern Wisdom or if you watch Huberman or any of these people that are on the internet now telling you exactly what you should and shouldn't eat, what you should and shouldn't do, what you should and shouldn't do for for your own physical, individual, biological health, most of the people in the world won't look at that and say, no, I think eating a lot of fat and sugar and watching TV is really good for me. Now, I've heard a lot of people say, well, I, my grandpa smoked three packs a day and it didn't hurt him. Uh, yeah, but most people, it, it's not, again, part of this is that human beings are nowhere near as rational or straightforward as we imagine them to be. Most human beings will tell you, if pushed, not even very hard. Yeah, I do a whole bunch of things that are not good for me. And I'm sure at some point this is going to cost me my health or at least my vitality at some old age. But you know what? I'm going to do them anyway. And when it comes to spreading this out as a society, the heart wants what it wants. And people are going to do what they want, even if they know full well there's really no question that it's a bad idea, but we do it anyway. And while having a high level of prosperity, and there are many places we can look in the world today to begin to get inspiration for how we might do that. You know, I, I think um, to understand the scale of the threat right now, one of the, the, the things I always start people with is when I started caring about this. And a lot of people are like, why is it that people in Silicon Valley seem to care about this so much? And it's because there's a lot of VCs in Silicon Valley. And VCs need to chart the economy 50, 100 years in the future in the way. And someone once said, where your money is, there will your heart be also. That, you know, Wall Street people really don't. They're looking at the economy five, 10 years out or whatever. So because of that, when I was working as a VC, I happened to be working in Korea when I was working in a VC. Um, and I kept trying to chart the future of the economy. And I kept coming to the same answer, is that Korea had no future. At their current fertility rate right now, for every 100 Koreans, there will be 5.9 great-grandchildren. We are looking at a 94% population collapse over the next century. And when I brought this up with the other partners at my firm, and I was like, hey, like, it just doesn't seem like there is any feasible economic future for this country. They're like, yeah, but we pretend like that's not the case in our investments. Like everybody knows this, but like if we accepted it, then the economy stops working, society stops working. So we're just gonna ignore it basically. And when I came back to the US, it was like going back in time 20 years, like I was in some sort of a sci-fi movie and getting to be this one person who saw where the future was going to go and, and, and having to be that crazy person on the streets. Like, no, 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 you guys don't understand. There's countries further ahead than us on this spectrum right now. Okay, and we know a few things. We know there is no floor. No country has hit a, a, a fertility collapse floor yet. We know that there is no level of advanced fertility collapse where people freak out, or at least not until it's too late. Because you look at Korea right now, and 60% of, uh, of Korean citizens are over the age of 40. So it's, it's likely already too late for them to turn this, this problem around. So we need to turn this around before we hit that level. But the truth is we probably won't. And, and, and we've got to think of solutions for when we don't turn this around, but that's a different topic for later in the interview. Well, one of the most common questions I imagine that people ask is, why should anyone care 
about how many children another person has. This is my choice. You can't impose me yeah. to have kids if I don't want to have them. Why should two guys sat on the internet be telling the world about the dangers of not having children? People can go and do other things with their lives now. Women are allowed to be in the workplace. Men can go their own way and play video games and be a Sigma male as much as they want. Why should anyone care about how many children another person has? So I, I think that that's a really good point. And our foundation, I think one of the things that people most often get wrong about us is that we are trying to increase the world's population or that we are trying to uh, proselytize broadly to increase fertility rates. And, and neither one of those things is true. If we are on the Titanic right now, no matter what the Titanic- and, and that point, I think, is an incredibly important point. And I take him at his word. It, it, I mean, when you look at what he's saying reasonably, that's not even a project. There's no, there's no point really saying that or thinking that at all. And so that's not the motivation. But what's interesting to me is how we all suspect that it's the motivation. You have no agency. We want what's best for you. That's what we assume. Everybody on the other side of set, we expect that that's their motivation. He's like, that's not my motivation. It's not why I'm in this at all. Titanic hits the iceberg. We are trying to, one, make people aware that the Titanic's about to hit an iceberg, get them in lines by the rafts, the ones who want to survive, start getting the rafts in the water in a calm and orderly fashion before people start panicking. Because now, another thing in this is we want people to. Now, pause. Because this kind of calamity, unlike, let's say, the the Weinstein kind of calamity, which is that um, nuclear weapons or 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 war or something like this, this is the not the, not the kind of thing that destroys people. This is the kind of thing that destroys an image of people. This is the kind of thing that destroys what we talk about when we say, "Well, this is my life," and when when someone says. Well, the day the day that my husband died in that car accident, my life ended. So, so it isn't actually people that this is about. Now, a little bit later, he's going to go into some of this with respect to the very subtle ways in which we think about what life is. A lot of this is the the, the question of the definition of life, because in many ways, what he is presenting is sort of an Old Testament definition of life. Because it's you, you live through your, through your descendants. That is your life. You live through your culture. What, what, you, what you want to have when you, let's, let's just draw the curtain at, at physical cessation of life. Now, those of you who know me know I very much believe in life of the age to come and life after death, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. but what you want to imagine when when you're lying in your deathbed surrounded by your family and your loved ones and your children and your grandchildren and you want sort of these scenes that you find in the book of Genesis where Jacob's about to die and so Joseph brings the sons and of course they cross the hands and all this stuff that you find in the Bible. Oh, that's, that's what I want because I want to go to my grave thinking that all of my most cherished beliefs, all of my most cherished people will be happy and they will believe what I believe, and off we go. And if you, I haven't listened to a lot of their channel, but if you listen to enough of their channel, this is what you hear. This is sort of the focus of the of of the definition of what is life. 
when you listen to them. And that's implicit in the little Titanic analogy he just gave. That's what's going to happen. And so what we promote is is trying to get, I mean, I know my family's gonna be okay. You know, I, I know that my cultural group is gonna be okay. Broadly- <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> you, you have no idea what your children are going to think or do 20 years from now. You really don't. Speaking, um, so one, I know that my family, you know, I have eight kids and they have eight kids and you do that for 11 generations. That's more descendants than exists in the world today, I often say. So I don't need to worry about people like me. The reason I'm so loud about this is because I'm worried about the the massive collapse in, 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 in cultural and ethnic diversity the world is about to see. Um, now, this is a fascinating thing about him, too, that what he cares about is diversity. And it's, it's like, what? You know, will there be Thai restaurants? Will there be? And and so he, he cares that there will be. He, he assumes that his children will be able to maintain his culture as if the children of Genghis Khan have maintained the culture of the great Khan. Um, but that, that, that there be other cultures out there. And so you can't argue that he's some sort of a, you know, some sort of a racist or anything like there's nothing, there's none of that going on here. Um, and it, it will be astonishing for people. Uh, I think in the far future that there were more than like three ethnic groups and three cultural groups or something like that, if we don't solve this. Uh, and so what we're trying to do is just make people aware of this because so much of the propaganda. What's interesting again, is that if we don't solve this, well, this is some of the issues that that say the the climate and and environmental issues have which is well what exactly is the right temperature is there a thermostat that we are to set for the planet and 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 what amount of species is the right but is is like having all of the old species or is i mean because that's that's a really difficult question and and again it shows well Ideals govern. ...that people are consuming is telling them things are fine, have less kids, you're a good person if you have less kids. And I know you've talked about this before on the show, and it, it, is, it is astonishing. And I think when we look at this urban monoculture that is erasing all of the genuine diversity in our society, uh, one of its core messages is negative utilitarianism. That, that, that What's amazing is that, let's say... I love telling this story that my grandmother told me. She was born at the beginning of the 20th century, and she used to go to church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And she went to church one Sunday, and the new technological innovation that my great-grandparents could afford, apparently, for their little girl was flesh-colored stockings. And so she went to church in flesh-colored stockings. Now, this particular church in Grand Rapids, Oakdale Park, where my grandmother and my grandfather went as children because it was a church right down the road because everybody walked to church and you had the church close by. Um, they went to church and she wore those flesh-colored stockings to church. And an old man stopped her and told her that nice girls wear stockings. And I could just imagine my grandmother saying this. She just looked at him and said, I'm wearing flesh-colored stockings. And you think the generation gap is new. Uh, what happened to that culture? Where is that culture? And so now you've got, also you've got the combinatorial explosive challenge of a definition of a culture. Because the culture 
that my grandparents grew up in is gone. And it was gone by the time my parents were young adults. And the culture that was around when my parents were young adults is gone. And it's almost the problem of, I have a little, when I look at pictures of my children when they were young, where did those children go? Well, where did they go? They're gone. And, and so there's, a, there's very much a frame issue in this entire analysis. Uh, the, the, the core evil thing in the world is human suffering. And that human happiness just doesn't really matter or it is largely outweighed by human suffering. And therefore, it's better if humans don't exist. And that's the end goal for the urban monoculture. Okay. Now, one of the real contributions I think he makes is his analysis and talking and highlighting and paying attention to the urban monoculture. And we pointed this out in the previous video a little bit, but he gets into it quite a bit more depth in this video. I think for a lot of people. What do you mean when you say urban monoculture? Well... Okay, so this sort of gets down to like uh, my personal politics to some extent, but I think that if you look at society right now, it's largely div becoming divided into two factions and there has been a major political shift around what conservative and progressive means. Um, the progressive is the party of this urban monoculture, which is a single sort of cultural group or virus that infects other cultural institutions and erases whatever makes them unique and aligns all of their goals. So if I so there's very much connections with modernity here, and there's very much connections with globalization here. But I, you know, I think he's right. Talk with a progressive Muslim or a progressive Jew or a progressive Catholic um, or a progressive Unitarian Universalist, and I scratch beneath the surface. Often their morals, their views on gender, their views on what future they want for the world are all very, very similar. If I look at conservatives from each of those factions their worldviews are very different. And what the conservative party seems optimizing around, so where the liberal party is optimized around the goals of this monoculture, so spreading the monoculture and reducing in the moment human suffering. That's why they promote things like haze, you know, like don't tell somebody that it's unhealthy to be fat because that could hurt their feelings in the moment, even though- it Well, and he's exactly right. This in the moment human suffering is evil. That's the definition of evil. And so the urban monoculture, and I've pointed this out many times, is that, well, you know, made in Canada. Well, they're suffering. Well, does it matter? No, they're suffering. We're going to end suffering. And the way to end suffering is end human beings because human beings suffer and living human beings because life is suffering. And so I've often made the, the comment with respect to uh, celebrity atheists that, well, that if, if that is in fact your goal, then the big shot of cocaine and a bullet chaser is the answer to life because chemically you can maximize your enjoyment and happiness and then don't leave any time for suffering afterwards you don't want to come down i i remember again one of the the guy who slept against my door for years i, I mean he would the thing he dreaded most was if he would wake up sober he, that that isn't his entire life was engineered around avoiding waking up sober he he made sure that whatever he had he had he had either alcohol or something a little bit stronger to make sure that when he would wake up, he could very quickly get out of that sober state and get back to where he wanted to be. Like, obviously, it's bad for them in the long term. But um, the conservative movements all have in, in very distinct uh, cultural histories, which they are trying to preserve. And that is often 
if I look at the conservative movement today, it's an alliance of these older traditions and newer but deviant and distinct traditions um, that are trying to maintain cultural fidelity and exist 100, 200 years from now. Um, and so when I talk about... Now, this is where, of course, getting back to Brett Weinstein comes in because these mimetic genetics are also trying to get themselves into the future and we're the carriers for that. So if you watch the video that has the the end is now the sandwich uh, Homer as sandwich board guy. You know, I, I played that clip of of from Rebel Wisdom of of Brett Weinstein and and Jamie Jamie Wheel of well, these genetics are trying to get themselves in the future. Well, these cultures are trying to get themselves in the future. Now, it's really helpful also to think about the fact that a good bit of what a culture is is sort of the let's say the attention gravity or the attention magnet. Because what, and this is sort of where you get this Girardian um, idea about mimetic rivalry and how the attention magnet of one culture will, will force the rival cultures to pay attention to those, those same things. And once you sort of draw the attention of the traditional conservative established rival culture onto the one thing, now that culture has been changed. And, and I've made this point before in the Christian Reformed Church and the fight over women in office. Before that fight, women were doing all kinds of things that once the fight got engaged, conservative churches stopped women doing those things. Nobody thought anything about the age of the children that the women were teaching Sunday school until suddenly, well, like 13 is, you know, a woman, a woman can teach a boy until he's 13. And then at 13, he's a man. And it's like, we're going to have bar mitzvahs in the Christie Forum Church? Who thought of this idea? But it's this whole attentional mimetic rivalry thing that the, the, the cultures the cultures shape each other. About the monoculture, that's what I'm talking about. This thing that wants to, when my kids go to school, say, this is what correct morality is. This is the way you should see the world. And if your parents are telling you anything else, they're deplorable and wrong. Is that not the case with some factions from a conservative side as well, though? Yeah. Yeah, no, and I, I, I call them sleeper progressives. They just want to erase all other cultures the moment they gave power. But I think that right now I can form an alliance with them because our goals are aligned. I think one of the really cool things that we've seen with the conservative parties, you saw something like when Andrew Tate converted to Islam. You know, in the past, a conservative icon converting to Islam, a lot of people would have been wringing their hands about that. But a lot of people were like, you go, you know, at least you found some faith. At least you found some tradition. Did people really cheer? <laughs> I mean, it's Andrew Tate. And so I think what we're seeing there is more of a realization that the, the big bad these days is this culture that's trying to homogenize the world. Interesting. What would you say to the well-meaning people from the progressive movement that say it feels a little bit bad to be tarnished with the brush as a super virus? I think that I'm, you know, I'm just somebody that holds liberal values. I don't believe that I'm part of some well, right. destructive so, force within the world. And and I think that there are people who genuinely um, uh, like within any movement, you know, when when the Catholic Church used to be the the iteration of this in European society and they were trying to convert everyone to their ways and the Protestant Church during their own time had a periods like that in some countries. Um, the vast majority of Protestants or Catholics in those countries were just decent, well-meaning people trying to live their lives. But the ones who controlled the cultural institutions 
and we're you know burning people at the stake and and trying to ensure that everybody fit this very narrow definition of morality set by their culture to me they were the the evil ones within those institutions and today when i talk about this this monoculture um i, I think that the vast majority of people who are members of it are just like the vast majority of uh, of, of catholics and protestants during periods when when those cultural groups were dominant in specific regions. Why is this culture so effective? Very interesting. Okay, so it's evolved a lot of new tactics that have never been tried before. So in our book, The Pragmatist Guide to Crafting Religion, what we essentially do is we argue that humanity can be thought of as sort of an evolving firmware, which is like our bio biology, our genes. But on top of that firmware, there's evolving sets of software. And this software, today we often talk about memes as like things that infect somebody and then cause them to just turn around and infect other people. Now, again, this is astoundingly similar to Brett Weinstein's idea about mimetic genetics. It's fascinating. But historically, most mimetic clusters actually augmented a person's uh, sort of biological fitness, the number of surviving offspring they had, and that's how they survived. That's how, I mean, if you look at things with a secular mindset, why things like Islam and Judaism figured out stuff like hand washing literally centuries before science figured out hand washing. Um, and you see this. In other words, this is sort of a, a Darwinian mimetic. Um, the, 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 the people who get more things right sort of pass their mimetics into the future. Across these traditions, for example, if you look at all of the old traditions, almost all of them have some arbitrary self-denial holiday, like Lent or Ramadan or Feast of the Firstborn or whatever, right? And and just now, after throwing out all of those rituals over the past, you know, 50, 100 years, secular society's like, oh, now we got to have our juice cleanses. Now we got to have our, you know, they're, they're realizing of oh, fasting and stuff like that, right? It's, it has positive mental effects. Um, and, and so I think that, that if you see these different, like, evolving cultural groups, this super virus evolved some very unique tactics and it is not the same thing as a historic progressive movement what it is is something so the reason i call it a super virus is it is very much so when you talk about a super bacteria or a super bug they typically come up in things like hospitals where you have a ton of people with a weakened immune system all in a, a similar environment with lots of sort of viruses or bacteria that can that can intermingle alongside antibiotics and stuff like that this is what was created by the internet. This is why all of this stuff started when social media happened. Essentially, you had a super spreader environment where uh, new mimetic ideas were able to test themselves against all of the world's traditions at the same time, optimize and react very quickly. And I think this is, I think this is genius. I think, I think this, this vision, him laying it out here, this is like, uh we you know you can call it an egregore you can call it a spirit but this is this is and when it you know when he when it comes to all of the the concerns about ai and there's a lot of very legitimate concerns about ai it's it's the spirits riding on this technology and again this is the stuff of science fiction that well, there's this transmission and something, something hitched a ride. There's a, there's a spiritual stowaway that rode the internet and this is it. And become incredibly virulent while uh, evolving strategies that had never been tried before. So one of the most effective strategies that it uses is if you look historically, 
when if you look at cultural groups as sort of like nodal clouds that sort of overlap with each other, um, when you had a corrupted node within a, a nodal cloud or a node that looked like it was flipping, uh, what you would do if you were a majority Protestant country or majority Catholic country, like a Catholic came in and started preaching or a Protestant came in and started preaching, you, you'd burn them. You'd burn them at the stake often, right? Um, or uh, if somebody just had like random cultural mutation. You can manage the spirit by managing the host. So in the same way you have like random genetic mutation and they believe something weird, like they were a witch and you burn them, right? That's how you maintain this level of cultural fidelity. What the virus does, which is very interesting, is it uh, organically determines um, when a node looks like it might be flipping and then it essentially shadow bans the node. It begins to deconnect that node's links to all of the rest of the network's power structures. And this is really powerful because what it means is the other nodes that might be allied with that node, they don't react the way they would have historically when somebody was being like burned at the stake or something like that, which is actually why cancellation is a fairly ineffective tactic and genuinely not used that much when contrasted with just this shadow banning process of the person just doesn't get a promotion if, if it looks like they might be immune to these ideas. They just don't you know, their, their papers get published a little less, you know, uh, certain platforms. Begin and maybe this is the answer to why they have less than 10,000 subscribers on YouTube. Maybe, maybe Algo is looking at these guys and saying, no, I'm not going to, and I've made this point many times. One of the, one of the stupidest things you can do if you really want to sort of, if you want to oppose someone in this space is to draw attention to them because this is a creature of attention. So part of what we're doing with this dog that we're training is we're training the dog within the methodology of the organization that owns the dog. So we don't, we don't have a choice about the ideology of the dog training that's going involved And this particular dog training is all positive reinforcement. It's not negative reinforcement. So then you have the question, what do you do when the dog is behaving in a way that is out of line with the ends to which we are training the dog and, and the organization is pursuing for the future of the dog? You ignore the dog. So when the dog jumps up, you turn away. When the dog barks, you turn away. You, do, you don't give the dog eye contact. In a sense, that's exactly what's happening here. Begin to favor them less within the algorithm. Um, and that's how it has been able to maintain such control, I think, of the upper echelons of our society. But it's not like every organization is run by a progressive movement, right? There are organizations out there that seem to be a lot more open to new ideas. We're seeing pushback from a variety of places. The opportunity for people to have independent uh, yeah. jobs. So I would say that it's not every organization. So it, it specifically targets the organizations it can best use to maintain its population levels. Um, and so those are tip. Now, pay attention to how we're talking here. It specifically targets agency, isn't it? So we're back into the egregore, hyperobject, spiritual conversation that this um, this thing has agency. Typically, organizations that are involved in education. So you're looking at the middle school system, the high school system, and the college system are the organizations that it is most critical that it maintains an absolute stranglehold over. And this again comes to fertility issues. Of the populations of the world, if there is one population that has a very low birth rate, it is this population, uh, this, this urban monoculture. Um, and uh, because of that, the only way it can repopulate its ideological faction is through siphoning children 
from other often more conservative cultural traditions or in other we're the urban monoculture and we're here for your children other ways deviant cultural traditions that are for whatever reason having a lot of kids okay getting back to fertility <laughs> what groups are doing particularly well and particularly badly when it you should ex- you should have stayed on this longer because there's there's good stuff here comes to fertility this is a fascinating question all right so um the the uh uh if you look in a post-prosperity environment so a lot of people they're like oh well countries in africa are doing really well uh they have high fertility rates or muslim populations have high fertility rates and it's like well that's irrelevant if those populations are in a country where the average salary is under five thousand dollars a year because that is where you get above replacement fertility in pretty much every country that's under five thousand a year you get above replacement every country above five thousand a year you typically get below replacement fertility um uh, and so it's a level of desperate poverty first of all that is often misconstrued so you look at latin america central america south america the caribbean collectively as of 2019 so old news they fell below repopulation rate um so it's really just a few of, of, of these, these these poorest countries so i really ignore any country at a high fertility um if, if it's a poor country or if it's not a wealthy country right and so i think where you can see is some misunderstandings that people have from that so you look at populations like muslim populations when they enter wealthier countries their populations really crash or when the countries where they are the dominant social group so you can look at iran iran's fertility now what he's about to talk about here with respect to iran i had no idea because i've heard often i mean iran has this enormous population this is a number of years ago i heard this under the age of 25 and this enormous young population in iran i talked about it a little bit on the live stream today is a source of anxiety because you know they want their mtv uh oops, boy hello boomer rate fell above below replacement a long time ago and, and for uh since 2014 they've been trying pretty much everything in their power to try to get fertility rates back above repopulation rate and their government has a lot of control over the populace and they are not able to they're still only at 1.7 um so the groups that really show resistance to this are conservative christian groups and conservative jewish groups and this is why i always think it's funny when people are like oh you're talking about fertility rates you must be about saving white people and it's like white conservative people are like the only people on earth who don't seem to be disappearing in, in, in the face of uh, prosperity induced fertility collapse. The groups that are most at risk are the Eastern traditions. Even conservative iterations of those traditions are very bad at resisting prosperity induced fertility collapse. Prosperity induced fertility collapse. What is the relationship between prosperity and fertility? Well, Why? as I said, typically when a country earns over 5,000 USD a year, uh, fertility begins to fall below replacement rate. Now, again, okay, so so here's a correlation. Why? Well, why do we ask why? Because, well, if we ask why, maybe we can find the loophole and we can get around it. Yes, it, why? Between, oh, well, so uh, this is, we can say is nobody quite knows, but there is some evidence as to what might be causing this. What is probably causing it is the ability to engage with a modern economy. Um, so when somebody is not engaged with the modern economy, um, and not valuable to the modern economy, then uh, the modern economy basically ignores them and they go on living the way humans have always lived and having a lot of kids. This is why within developed countries, so if you look at a country like the US, right? Uh, typically, the less money you make, the more kids you have, except when you're at the very high end of the income spectrum. So uh, if you're making an average of half a million dollars- That I didn't know. Again, this whole section is really fascinating. These are very interesting people a year or more as a family, you will be at above replacement fertility. And in many ways, families at that income level are just not like the economy isn't grabbing them as much because they don't need the economy as much. 
So what's really happening is if you look at our sort of free market structure, what it does is it organically determines how to reward anyone who has the probability of, that it believes has the probability of being productive with just enough money to get them to spend their time being productive versus doing anything else that may have long-term benefits to the society, like having kids or whatever, right? Um, and it's very, very good at doing this. And then it draws them into environments like cities where it becomes even harder to have kids and where they can, um, anyway, yeah, uh, where, where they can be more productive and spend more time working and, and generating money for this larger economic system. I was going to say, it doesn't seem like, it doesn't seem realistic that this could be a large behemoth, evilly behind the scenes working to try and get fertility rates down. It seems more likely that it is a natural byproduct of a capitalist machine that wants to have workers who are available as much as possible, who don't take maternity yeah. or paternity leave, who are buying their clothes and taking their holidays, consuming and producing and pumping money back into the system. Is that the I way that you see it? everything you're saying there. And that's also what I mean when I talk about the virus. I don't think any decision is made maliciously. I think everybody thinks they're a good guy. Everyone's trying to do what they think is best for the world. But sometimes um, sort of a, a, a cultural evolution- Everybody! Evolutionary pressures can create incentive systems that lead to actions that in the long term will have consequences that I think most people would think are bad. Okay, at the beginning, you mentioned a bunch of other uh, contributing factors, prosperity being one of them. What yeah. were the what were the other elements? Gender equality and education are typically the other two. Run us through those. Well, um, gender equality when 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 uh, it is often specifically female education. Um, when women begin to have a choice as to what they do and can participate in the economy, um, I I don't think that it's that they're choosing not to have kids. I think that that is a misunderstanding of what we're seeing in the data. I think it's that they prioritize economic stability and basically having their life in order before they decide to start having kids. And I think that's right. And it also has to do with, now I'm older than these people, it also has to do with the 70s when the, when the divorce rates hit and a lot of women and their parents, you know, you don't have dowries anymore. You don't have all of this stuff that the ancient world sort of had that if the marriage goes bad, here, here you can prop up the woman. Women were, and still are in many respects, even though women initiate divorces at a higher rate than men, uh, divorce is one of the things that plunges women into poverty because, of course, there's childcare going on. But the way our economic system is structured, people often don't really feel they have their life in order till their mid-30s or 40s. Or, and, and at that time, they can no longer have kids. Um, and so I think that... That is why it is not that women are choosing jobs over kids. It's that they're choosing jobs, then kids and their biological clocks run out while at the same time. Um, and I think this is something that's really undersold when people talk about fertility collapse is the absolute collapse of marriage markets in our society. Um, it is, uh, I saw a tweet and I couldn't agree with it more being in a, a happy marriage. Now again, go back to the Louise Perry conversation with, I was with, with Chris as well, where she says now, used to be that people people were married by virtue of their participation in a real life community where the man and the woman were both in part of this community and so they would find each other put put together by a broker and then you know you just had a lot of structure that that would help make that they had a lot of commonality so on and so forth marriage market the fact that marriage 
that mate selection was sent out into a marketplace in order to resolve already says you're deep into modernity. Urge these days uh, feels a bit like catching the last chopper at a nom. Um, because uh, it is hard. It is hard out there to find a good partner. And, and we have seen a, a collapse of the systems that previously ensured people found uh, uh, great long-term uh, dedicated partners. Well, that's the point. It's not just about declining birth rates. It's also about declining dating. So 50% of guys aged 18 to 30 say that they're not looking for casual or long-term relationships. I mean, you know, that's an unbelievably shocking statistic to say that your natural biological inclination as a guy during the period of your life when you're going to have the highest testosterone that you're going to have is just checking out completely of either casual or long-term relationships. Because men got into marriage for sex. They did. They did. I'm just saying they did. Sex is a very powerful motivator for men. And, well, now you've got all other, these other ways to... Um... The same thing goes for women broadly as well, that it's just not good. So how do you fold in this decline in dating as well as children? I mean, how do you fold it in? Uh, it's It's... what I just say is it's a problem. And one of the things we look at, I mean, we've written multiple books on like the Pragmatist Guide to Relationships, the Pragmatist Guide to Sexuality, looking at this problem, trying to come up with solutions to this problem. Um, And I think that this brings us to what the real solution to this problem is in a broader context, not just dating, um, not just, uh, but, but also fertility collapse, also the cultural. So whenever anybody first hears about fertility collapse, they often want to use it as a way to justify, I think the talking points they wanted to push before it became a problem in their on, on, on their table. Like as soon as they accept it's a problem, then they're like, oh, I can use this to push things I wanted to push already. So they'll say things like, oh, well, you should do cash handouts. Uh, except we know that doesn't really work. You know, Hungary spent 5% of its GDP last year doing it and they got the fertility rate up by like 1.6%. When, when it's dropping like 3% year over year in a lot of places in the world, that's really irrelevant. Like China, 2020 dropped 20%. 2021 dropped 13%. In 2022, COVID lockdowns are over. It should be going up, only went up 0.18%. You know, so uh, you're just seeing a 1.6% increase for 5% of your GDP is irrelevant. Um, so, uh, and, and people are often like, well, you could spend more. What if you spent 50% of your GDP on this? But if it's naturally dropping every year, then you can never catch that toad if you're doing it by by spending money. And it's the same with things like free childcare. God, I would like free childcare. You know, I plan to have seven kids or something like that. Uh, no, uh, 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 uh. You're trying to keep your culture going. You're not going to want to send them out to the little ch- the little preschool down the road. You're trying to preserve your culture. And if you're going to preserve your culture, you are not going to outsource your young child care. Uh, but in the countries that offer it, it does seem to help fertility a little bit, like maybe like 3 or 4%, which is a pretty good amount. But it's not enough to offset the trends that we see. Um, and then you talk to conservative groups, and they're like, well, what we should do is, uh, and I'm talking far conservative groups, not not ones like me, but but they're like, we should create ethnostates, basically. Um, you know, stop immigration, uh, have one culture, one country. Except if you actually look at the statistics, the countries, in prosperous countries, 
with the lowest fertility rates are often ethno states, you know, like South Korea, stuff like that. You look at the countries that have been most resistant to fertility collapse in the prosperous world, you're looking at countries like Israel and the US, some of the most diverse countries. And you can even see this with cultural groups across countries. So you look at like Iran, remember I mentioned Iran famously has a real big fertility country and they're basically a Shia monoculture. But you look at Shia Muslims in India at similar economic levels where it's much more diverse and their fertility rates like twice what it is in Iran. Um, so uh, I, I think that, that that's- It seems to be cultures in competition. Very interesting. That's the first thing. So then the second question becomes, well, how do you actually solve this problem, right? you look around the world, uh, and we've already talked about it, I mean, the solution's sort of staring us in the face, the groups that are resistant to this are the ones that deviate in some way from the urban monoculture. Most of them are traditionalist religious groups. Um, and there are- So you're looking at the Benedict option in a lot of ways. Some traditionalist religious groups that are more resistant to this fertility collapse than others, and some that seemed like they were resistant, and then all of a sudden collapsed. Uh, Mormons are an example of this. Like Mormons had great fertility rates, then like five or six years ago, something happened and now they're probably below replacement rate. Um, and so uh, what that tells me is that the solution to this is going to come at the level of cultural experimentation, both fortifying our traditional cultures to be more resistant to the new threats they're facing, but also potentially inventing new cultures that work uh, with, with, with technology, uh, the internet, new strategies that are open to us, which is what my family's trying to do. Now, now, again, remember, you've got to sort of, you've got the frame issue that, well, what is what is your goal? What is the thing at the top of the value hierarchy that you're trying? Well, we're just trying to, are you just trying to multiply human beings and keeping, remember the comment that I read, keeping economics from collapsing? Or are you, in fact, trying to have a culture that you continue to preserve? Tell me more about that. Okay. Um, yeah. All right. So I can, I can go deeper into this. So we have everything from like our own traditions of the family, our own sort of the moral framework, different ways of naming our kids, different ways of dressing to an extent. Like we look weird to other people. And a lot of people are like, you guys look like freaks. Don't you know your kids will be weird? Don't you know they'll be bullied? And I go, you know, look around the world, which families, which cultures are going to exist in the future? It's, it's, it's ones like the Amish, the Hasidic, you know, where, wherever you look, they look different. They dress different. They name their kids different things. It's because the, when you call something cringe, when you call something different or weird or freaky, what you are saying is it differentiates from the cultural norms to which you are accustomed. Those cultural norms became the dominant cultural norms because they had a good immune system, because they were good at dehumanizing the other and calling people freaky and stuff like that. But the reality is that if you want to join this game, and, and this is why I'm out here, this is why I'm yelling. I don't want a future where it's just my kids is a failure, right? Where it's just my family. I want as much diversity into the future as possible. That's why I'm shouting this. I want people to join us. I want them to experiment and fortify themselves and not become overly complacent uh, with their existing traditions if their kids are being effectively peeled out by this monoculture. Um, it, it's very interesting to me. You know, I sometimes hear people on the right and they go, why don't you just convert to like a traditional religious framework? And it's because most of those frameworks are right now on the downtrend in terms of their ability to continue a high fertility and maintain their kids. I do want them to. Uh so there's an element of a religion that's not a religion here. And, and now I haven't delved, some of you have watched more of their videos. And so I haven't, 
I haven't got, I've only gotten so far in terms of my research project and my digging with respect to these guys. But there, it's interesting because there are dynamics, but of course he's, fair enough, you take your best shot. But one of the, one of the, one of the things about life is that in a community that is multi-generational, at least have some indication of where things are going. Now, what's happened is that even communities that are multi-generational have been disrupted. It's interesting he mentioned the Hasidic, and uh, I'm, Jacob, I'm sure, will have his, his say in this, too. Uh, find new systems to protect themselves against that, uh, but that's, that's why that's just, just going to traditions isn't the answer anymore. Uh, the, 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 the virus, or whatever you want to call it, has gotten too good at... at rep- finding kids. Um, and so we have to find new systems. And also the, the, just the, the, the environment the kids are in with internet, with social media, uh, it's, it's so different. And then with AI that they're gonna face, how do you keep your kid from dating an AI girlfriend when they can have a deep fake that's perfect and hot and loves them, right? Uh, you, you, they need to want something other than hedonism. And that's a difficult message to convey to kids if they adopt the dominant social mores today. So to- re- And there's something an alternative to hedonism. And I mean, this, in some ways, this is what sort of Islamism tried to fight. You know, they really had objections to American culture and the way that they've been trying to fight as a civilization, the the urban monoculture. That's in, in many ways what, what this has been about. I, I talked about that a little bit in the live stream today. And because if you look at Rami, let's say that, and I recommend Rami on Netflix, that was on a Netflix, it's on Hulu. Rami on Hulu, I guess it won awards, something like that. It was on a few years ago. It's still on Hulu. But, you know, it, it's all about basically the struggle between this young Islamic guy who, I mean, he wants the genuine article, but he keeps getting sucked in. And, and in one of the seasons, he actually goes back to Egypt and he's thinking, oh, I'm going to go back to Egypt, Egypt, where the culture is pure. And then he gets to Egypt and everybody's all excited. Oh, it's our cousin from America. America's that's the culture that we want. And he winds up sleeping with his cousin. Um, you know, crazy. But but these issues, part of what grabbed my attention about this show is, in fact, these are the issues that we're dealing with here. And so within an Islamic context, they're dealing with it there. Cap, what you were talking about to do with this uh, sort of almost monotheistic uh, future or this this sort of monoculture future that we would end up with if birth rate decline continues, for the people that might look at this and say, well, this is you trying to put forward, you want it to be a, a white ethno state, you want it to be more of your progeny that are out there. Your point is that that is the subgroup which is one the, the irony if you want more of your progeny out there is have progeny <laughs> of the few which are continuing to be okay at the moment we're actually going to lose genetic and racial diversity if we allow the current trends to continue because some yeah. of the groups that are reproducing with the lowest fertility rates are the ones that add to that diversity so in the future what you end up with is a very small number of different cohorts of stuff like amish stuff like not even Mormons apparently anymore, yeah. who are then downstream going to be the ones that fill out the entire country. Yeah, if we do nothing, uh, the future is really just uh, conservative Christians and conservative Jews and maybe conservative Muslims. Um, th- those seem to be the only groups that are just like persistently resistant to this. So that's um, a, a pretty sort of uh, bland future. 
Now, bland. It's been pretty spicy between these groups anyway. What's interesting, though, is what I find often in these conversations is that when people talk about resistance, well, what does that mean? What does that look like? What are the strategies? Because, of course, one resistance is Amish. You build high walls and you keep them out and you try to keep the kids away from TV. Others is sort of cultural engagement. And so that isn't, you know, they, I, I haven't taken a look at their books yet, but they obviously want to recommend, well, here are some ideas. This is what you need to do. And I look forward to digging into some of this. And some people that I've been chatting with on DMing on Twitter have started to dig into some of this. So it's going to be interesting because the whole question of, how to resist is is a really complex one. And I talked about this a little bit in terms of lions and foxes and also in terms of, I was asked a question about the culture war that was on um, that was on a small podcast out of, out of Eaton in the UK. And the question of exactly how to do this is, is really complex. Future, racially. From yeah, and I and there's some groups that in the very near future, like if I if I was looking at this like an ecologist, right? Like the groups I would be probably most concerned about right now are groups like the Jans and the Parsi. I think like a lot of Americans don't think about, but they're some of the oldest, most distinct cultures in the world right now, and they will almost certainly have collapsed in in, in population by the end of the century to the point where it'll be difficult for them to carry on their traditions. So um, coming and, back coming back to that conversation yeah. about we get prosperous, we give women education, they enter the job. All right, so this obviously goes on for another hour, and I don't have an hour to sit and sort of walk through this video, so it's on the internet. Go ahead and watch it. Um, but it's it's super interesting, and it's super germane to many of the conversations that we're having. So there's a little taste. Leave a comment. Let me know what you think.